We are today finishing up our series of messages on the fundamental list, really looking at the answers to life's four fundamental questions. Those four fundamental questions that we talk about each week is, how did we get here? What went wrong? Can we fix it? And what do we do? Like, what, what, what's the result of that? And over the last few weeks, we have walked through the first three of those questions. How did we get here? Well, the one and only God created everything. What went wrong? Sin. Can we fix it? No. But Jesus did. If we follow Him, we will see the results. And so the question for today then is, what do we do now? And Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. But before we get into that, let me just say, as we pick up in Ephesians chapter 4, we are literally halfway in the book, at the pivotal moment in the book, a turning point in the book. And what's gone before this is an extensive teaching of theological concepts, of doctrine and the truths of the gospel. Without many In fact, only one command at all in the first three chapters. There are, by my count, 66 verses in the first chapters of Ephesians, the first three chapters. And in those 66 verses, there is only one verse that contains one command of something we are to do. And that's it. And I could just move on and just make that point, but some of you are going to be searching for it the entire sermon, so... It's in chapter 2, verse 11. It's not even a strong command. It's a simple command. He says, So then remember who you were at one time. Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, by which is done the flesh of human hands. And at that time you were without Christ, excluded from citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. And so for the first three chapters, he's laying down a theological foundation, and the only command he gives them is he says, remember who you were before Christ changed you. I don't know who you were before Christ changed you. I was a nine-year-old child when I became a follower of Jesus Christ, and even though I had not done heinous crimes in my life to that point, It is evident from who I am outside of Christ that that was always a possibility for my future without Him. And that Jesus radically changed me even at nine years old. And so He tells them, remember who you were. And then the rest of that whole section is telling us what God has done for us. He is laying down the theological, foundational aspects of the gospel. It's similar to what we've done over the last three weeks. We're going to talk about what do we do with this now, but we couldn't talk about what we do until we talk about what God's done. The one command in the first three chapters is about to give way to a flurry of commands in the rest of the book. For example, just in chapter 4, we go from one command to put away falsehood, 
Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't give opportunity to the devil. Don't let corrupt talk come out of your mouth. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Get rid of bitterness. Be kind to one another. Get rid of sexual immorality and impurity. And all the way through, again and again and again, it is do this, do this, do this. And all of the imperatives, all of the commands, all of the things, the activity that comes is an outworking of the first verse of chapter 4, which is where we want to focus today, the turning point in the entire book. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Therefore, I, Paul, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Today I really want to focus just on that first verse. The Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. To walk in light of what we know from Scripture, what we've already been taught, what we already know. He starts with the instruction, and that's important. In fact, we need to understand that the order that Paul writes these books is important. It is vital. Because what he's telling us in this chapter is the answer to the question, what are we supposed to do? The answer to that is that we are to walk worthy. As we walk through this, it becomes apparent as you look at what he's saying that we are to build that based upon what God has already done in us. That first word, therefore, changes the tenor of all of the commands that come after it because he's not telling them, hey, this is my suggestions from me, Paul. This is because of what God has done for you, in you, through you. It changes how we live. You see, I want to tell you something that is radical, although it doesn't seem radical when you first hear it, and it is simply this, that in order to live like a Christian, you must first be a Christian. Right? One of the biggest issues that the church today has in communicating with the outside world is we expect them to live like followers of Jesus Christ when they are not followers of Jesus Christ. We can't expect that. We wouldn't do that. And so Paul is saying the first step in walking worthy of the calling that's been placed on your life is to receive the calling of Christ in your life, to give yourself to the salvation of Jesus Christ in order that He might radically change you from the inside out. You can't look and say, you know what, that Jesus, He's a pretty good teacher. You know what? I'm just going to practice the Sermon on the Mount without first knowing the one who gave it. Or somebody says, you know what, I could be a little more patient, I could be a little bit nicer. What they're saying is, I could take that, I could apply it to myself, but you can't apply it to yourself if you're not yet a believer. And so, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I don't expect you to walk worthy of the calling that Christ has placed on your life because you have not accepted the calling Christ has placed on your life. And the first step is that you must be saved. The order is important. The theology comes before the practice. The relationship comes before the acts. 
that you are to do. You can try all you want to to clean the outside, but if Christ has not saved you and it is coming from the inside, it will be ineffective at best. Do you remember what Jesus calls the Pharisees in the New Testament when he's having conversations with them? He says that they're whitewashed tombs. Or, or in another place, he, he tells them that they're, they're drinking out of a cup that they haven't cleaned the filth out of. Right? We've talked about this before. We, we've had this conversation when you pick up something and on the outside it looks fine, but then you open it, food, something, and the smell immediately hits you. There are a lot of people in our world who are trying to make themselves look good and act better without allowing Christ to change them from the inside. And the order is important. And when Christ chooses and you accept the salvation that comes from Him, then you begin to be changed to the point that you want to live it out in your life. And let me just say, here's the reality. If there is no behavioral change in your life based on the relationship you have with Jesus, you need to check to see whether you have a saving relationship with Jesus. Theology comes before practice. And here's the crazy thing about that too is that Ephesians, at the beginning of this book, tells us unbelievable realities about us. That He chose us before the foundation of the world. That He has seated us in the heavenly places. That He has empowered us with the same power that rose Christ from the dead. That He has gifted us with all of this that we do not deserve in the least. He has adopted us into His family. And He didn't adopt us because we looked like we were the smartest people on the planet. He didn't adopt us because we were the cutest one. He didn't adopt us because we were so upright morally that He had to have us. He adopted us in the midst of our sin and our shame and when we had nothing about us that could help us to live for Him. We were Dead, it tells us in Ephesians, in our transgressions. Dead. That is the wonder of the Gospel. We're just saying, like Lazarus, you brought me back to life. We were dead, just like Lazarus was dead. I've told you all before, one of my favorite verses in the old King James Version of the Bible is the verse where Jesus comes to the tomb and He says of Lazarus, and he says, roll away the tomb, and his sisters say, he has been dead for days now. He stinketh. Right? It's over, Jesus. He's dead. We, in our sins, stinketh. We're dead. And yet he brought us back to life. No matter who you are, and no matter what you've done, you can be completely transformed. 
Sometimes I feel like we talk about that so much, but we have that we, we just share that so much, or we hate, we we talk about Christ saving us and changing us that that we lose the impact of what happened. And sometimes God uses strange things to show me and remind me of the impact. And uh, I was on uh, looking online a couple of places yesterday, just kind of being around, um, and a video came up to me like three or four times. And I didn't watch it the first three or four times. And then the fourth time I said, you know what, somebody that I kind of respect shared, I was like, you know what, I'm going to watch that video just to see. And it's a a little bit of a lengthy video, and it's in the TikTok format of vertical. And we're going to show it in just a second, but I want to preface it with a couple of things. After the first 20 or 30 seconds, I was just wrapped up in it. It's about an interview with a guy on a street in New York who is has as a job, he collects trash and sells the bottles and those kind of things to different people. And then other stuff he finds in the trash, he may sell on the street. He goes to where the trash collection is and he does that. And I just want you, like I said, it's a, it's a little longer than videos we sometimes show, but I want you to watch the story of this man from New York. Can we go ahead and play that? What's the craziest thing you've found? Gold. Gold and cash. Cartier watches, all kinds of stuff. Diamonds, everything. There's nothing you can't find in New York City. So the way this industry works is people who have nothing go and they pick up the cans and bottles. Then we call a truck. So this truck goes and the driver gets one penny that he collects per bottle. Then the company that picks up the bottle from him gets eight and a half cents. How much do you make? Anywhere from four to eight hundred dollars a week. You know, it sounds foolish, but what I do is I take the pot and pan on a Saturday and Sunday. I'll, go, I'll be in uh, Jackson Heights and I'll go sell it for five, seven dollars. So I make another thousand dollars every weekend from the stuff I find during the week. <laughs> I have to laugh because I've been doing it for so long. I've been living off of it. So in a week you have a couple grand, maybe? 14, 15, 18, depends on the week. Depends on the weather. Because if I could be out in the summer day every day, I would sell all day every day. I'd make 3000 a week. Easy, easy. You grew up in New York? I grew up in New York. Grew up in Queens. Met my wife down there. Had three beautiful babies with her. Came up, involved in some not-too-good business. And I uh, got in trouble. Got locked up. Lost my wife and kids. So that's why I'm in this mess. Picking it must up have been very illegal. Was it like the FBI or something that got involved? The FBI got me. Uh, I was smuggling. Just, just, and people. Oh, and people. Yeah. Okay. That's the real money. Millions and millions of dollars. We used to drive boats to the Bahamas, to Bimini, different islands, and bring them over to the United States. How'd you get caught? I got ratted on. Somebody told on me. They got off from probation and I got 10 years. You regret anything? Oh, yeah, I regret everything. Lost my wife and kids. I didn't get to see any of the grandchildren be born. I missed a lot of stuff, man. You seem to be able to hold that pain together pretty well, though. You don't? What am I going to do? I got no more tears. I'm all cried out. Now all I do is I can only be joyful and laugh and have a good life because it's soon going to end. I'm 60. What were you like in the past? Real crazy, little reckless. I used to have big muscles and great hair, and girls thought I was cute. So I took advantage of all of that, and, and uh, it's not the right way to be. So now I'm a Christian. I do the right thing. I do my very best to walk properly, to love the others, you know? Milton, I didn't expect to see you here. Tell me about your relationship with God. Woo! So there's a great 
scripture and the word of God from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. It says, for God has chosen you before the foundation of the world. What that means to me is before Genesis 1-1, he had already chosen those who he chose. I was called in June of 1993. I gave my life to the Lord. I was in jail. The three ladies came from the Bronx to preach. I just felt led in my spirit to say, okay, I, I, I think you're telling the truth. I agree. I'll accept. Since 1993, which is 30 years ago, I've screwed up a million times. I've been used of God a million times, but I've screwed up a million times. And I've come to the conclusion after 30 years that truly, truly God knew who I was and what I was going to do and what I was going to become. And He knew I would pick up cans one day before it ever happened. That scripture helped me to realize that when I fail, you know, don't please or do the things of God. He still loves me. He still cares for me because he chose me in Christ. He seated me at his right hand in heavenly places. I'm seated there right now, whether I deserve it or not. Is that hope you have for the future, something you hold on to now? It's difficult, but I've seen so many miracles and so many spiritual things that I firmly with all my heart believe that God is real. And therefore, I believe his promises in the word and I stand on them. I don't deserve it, but thank God for his grace, you know? Hola, Amanda. That's my friend Amanda. Eric, Hi. it didn't come out yet, love. <laughs> Count yourself, Milton's coming back in 15 minutes. John, here's a question for you. Talk to me. When you get to heaven, what are you going to ask God? Why'd you choose me? <laughs> like, who am I that you, cho <laughs> you chose me? <laughs> I can walk on the streets made of gold. You got a house with me up there? Look at those streams and rivers and angels. Oh, I'm good to go. I'd be so, I couldn't stop smiling down here. I'm going to stop smiling up there. <laughs> what do you think he would say of you? You could have did so much better. I had so much more for you. You big dummy. <laughs> What do you have to say to someone who's trying to believe in God but can't? Simplest answer ever. I heard it from a young boy. God, 15 seconds of your time. Bow down and say, Lord, if you're real, make yourself real to me. Speak to me. I can keep you here all day, Eric, with stories. My God has been great to me. And I appreciate you coming around to encourage me and invigorate me again about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> How we doing, lady? How's life? Great. First of all, that's not Bob Lloyd. <laughs> but we haven't ruled out it's a relative. All right, we haven't ruled that out. So, uh, I warned Bob about the video earlier today. Uh, man, isn't it awesome to just see somebody who's filled with the joy that Christ has changed him? And based on that, therefore, Paul tells them, that because of what the Holy Spirit has done and what Jesus did on the cross. At the end of chapter 7, he says, This became a reality in your life when you heard the truth, the gospel, and you believed. He says, You've been saved. You've been seated in the heavens. You've been adopted by the Lord. And all of this is because of the great love He has for you. The great love which He has loved us. There. Walk worthy. What do we do? We walk worthy of the calling that is there. The word worthy there is the word that means.
means in the original language, the root of it means weight. Walk with the weight of what has been given to you, the reality. Um, In the Old Testament, the word for glory is literally the word weight. The the manifest presence of God is described as the weightiness of God, the, the heft of it, the load of it. And it says that we are not out of guilt, not out of, of trying to make up anything, but just out of the reality of the weight that God has given us so much in Christ. We walk with that weight in mind. We walk trying to equal the great blessings described in chapters 1 through 3. We walk trying to live out in gratitude to Him and to show others the greatness of the God that we serve. The question we ought to ask is, God, what can I do because of what You've done? How can I live because of what You've done? says it simply, just walk worthy. Chapters 4 through 6 give us what it means to walk worthy. And he really kind of puts it into different categories. He talks about how to work worthy in the church, how to work worthy before the world, and how to work worthy in your home. It's interesting, he places that home at the end, and not because I think it's least important, I think because it's most important. Because it's most important that we live out our life of faith in front of the people that know us best. Our church is important. The world is important. How we live it at home makes all the difference in our family. And so he gives them suggestions and commands and requirements page after page, verse after verse. And he starts with this understanding that if we're going to live a life worthy of the gospel that we have received, then the first thing that has to happen is the character of who we are has to be changed. And once our character is changed, once we're changed on the inside, then suddenly we begin to live it out in practice. We saw that in verse 2 there in chapter 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. He gives us these characteristics that ought to be a part of who we are. Humility and gentleness. Patience and endurance. And again, this is not something that you and I have to try to drum up on our own. This is that as we reflect on, as we remember where we were, what God did for us, and how He has changed us, the character traits within us, it begins to develop within us a understanding of humility and gentleness and patience and endurance. This idea that we are going to live from the character God is placing in our lives. You could extend that to the book of Galatians, to the fruit of the Spirit, where God says that the inner working of who we are is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. But these 
characteristics specifically as described in what Christ did for us. It tells us in Philippians 2 that he was humble to the fact that he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but instead came and lived a life on earth as one of us and became obedient not just to living life on earth, but obedient to death and not just any death, but death on the cross so that he could scorn the shame of the cross, endure the suffering of it, raise again from the grave, and be seated at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes on our behalf now. But he humbled himself first. And if Christ is willing to humble himself from God to man, what is in ourself that would say we're not willing to do the simplest task? To not try to be the one in lead, not try to be the one that has the last word, that has the say, that is the one that it gets their way all the time, but is willing to live in humility and gentleness. Can I just ask you a quick question? Who is the most powerful human being to ever walk the earth? Jesus, right? 100% man, 100% God. The strongest, most powerful. I've never seen another human being walk on water. I've never seen another human being calm a storm with a word, literally telling the storm to be quiet. And yet, when you hear Jesus described, do you know the two words that are often associated with him more than any other in general is Jesus, meek, and mild. Humble, gentle. I think about the number of times that he dealt with children and that he brought children to him. I know many of you out there are big fans of the Chosen series and we love watching that together as a family. And perhaps one of the most meaningful episodes of that is the one where the children just gather unto Jesus. Because he's always willing to receive Children may not know a lot of things in this world yet. They're growing. But one thing even some of the youngest kids know is when someone is welcoming and gentle with them. Gentleness. Patience. Aren't you glad God was patient with you? Aren't you glad God is patient with you? Man, the number of times he needed to step out of heaven and jump on my case are countless. The endurance there, it means, literally it means bearing with one another. It means holding each other up and enduring together. That is the character of someone who is walking worthy of the calling. Now, in direct reference in chapter 4, he's talking about that in the midst of the church and that the way, sometimes I hear people talk about church unity and, and it's a catch word. And here's the truth. You know how church unity happens? It happens when people are so overwhelmed with what Christ has done for them that they live with one another in humility and gentleness and patience and endurance. 
They give each other the benefit of the doubt. They don't talk about people behind their back. They don't have conversations about what's wrong with someone. They go directly to people when they need to. They don't consider themselves to have all the answers. They are gentle and compassionate and patient with each other. What do we do? We walk worthy of the calling. Well, how does that happen? First of all, there has to be a character development in us. And that character shows itself in how we treat other people. Sometimes, even in churches, the most ridiculous situations turn into things that change our witness to the world. J. Dwight Pentecost tells of a church split that was so serious that each side filed a lawsuit to dispossess the others from the church building. Now, you can tell it's gone off the rails biblically when the Bible says specifically don't sue one another and a church is suing each other. Judge finally threw it out, said he didn't have jurisdiction and came to a church court. And the higher judiciary of the church, however that happened, made it so that one side won and the other side didn't. And they dispossessed the church of one group and gave it to the other group. But the most interesting thing is that in the course of the proceedings of discovering what led to this conflict, they traced it all the way back to a church after church dinner. And at an after church dinner... One of the older members of the congregation got a smaller slice of ham than the child seated next to him and began to complain to his friends and fellow Sunday school members about the fact that this church no longer cared about him or his people. And as a result, it led to an impasse that led to a conflict that led to a dispute that led to a lawsuit. Now that's an extreme example, I hope. Although I do hear some people upset about ice cream night when people get bigger scoops than the others sometimes. Hopefully it doesn't go that far. But the understanding is if the character of the people of the church would have been humility and gentleness and patience, all of that could have been avoided. The word be patient literally means be long-tempered. Let it take a lot to get you worked up. And then, following that, we put it into practice. Now, if you've got your Bibles open, this won't be on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles open, you can look at the end of chapter 4. We're going to kind of look there for a minute. There's lots of places we could look. There's just a few verses that are just like, bang, 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 about things to do in order to live out a life worthy of the calling. And it starts in verse 25 down there. And I want you to notice a couple of things about these. First of all is all of them have theological basis, again, for the practice that is given. And secondly, they are relational in nature. They are something that is to help build relationship. Verse 25 says, Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. 
Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear it. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed for him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from among you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. We're going to go through just a few things real quickly that show the practice of walking worthy. And the first one is we tell the truth. He says that in verse 25. We speak the truth. Now what does that mean? That means that we... First of all, speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That all that we believe and act and do is based on the biblical understanding of the way God has revealed himself to us through Jesus and through his prophets and the words that are written for us. We speak the truth of God's word. But it also means that we speak the truth to one another in that we are honest with each other. We're honest to people's faces. We're honest behind their faces. We're honest to the outside world. Not in a vindictive way. We speak the truth in love. We do it in a way that is compassionate and healing. Not in a way that is hurtful. We throw away unrighteous anger. We live in a world that is perpetually mad. People are mad about something all the time. The service at Kroger. The ice cream machine at McDonald's. The Cracker Barrel waitress. And you know what we do with that anger that shouldn't be there in the first place? Do we take it home and reserve it for ourselves? No. We go to social media to gather the masses. Now, I'm not normally one to complain, but we are angry about the things that should never make us angry. Now, there is a righteous anger. The righteous anger is against the sin of the world and the way the enemy is destroying the people around us. We shouldn't be mad at the people. We should be mad at the enemy that is destroying their souls. Every news story has half the country mad as can be and the other half celebrating in victory dance. Even ones that shouldn't make either side happy or those that shouldn't make either side angry. We've got to remove that from us. We cannot be the perpetrators of anger in our society. And I'll just tell you, I've seen that leak into the church more in the last five years than in the first 18 I pastored. People are getting mad about stuff with each other. And when it happens, just taking their ball and going home or gathering a group to get upset with them about it. If we're going to walk worthy of the calling, I'm not saying that there aren't things that need to be corrected or that we don't have discussions, but the anger that comes cannot be a part of who we are as believers. 
unless it is directed towards the enemy and the sin that is causing people to fall short. Throw away unrighteous anger. He tells them to do their part. Now, he talks about stealing there. Stealing was a big part in their society. People had a lot of hardness time finding stuff, getting stuff, feeding themselves, feeding their families. And part of just the culture was that everybody kind of looked away every now and then for stealing to happen. And his point is not, hey, really mad at the people that are stealing. His point is, you do what you can do, and then if the church people have a need, you give them what they need so they don't have to go steal. Help one another out. You do your part, and if you've got part of what you've done, if you've lived to the point that you can give, then you give. But if you've lived to the point you can't and you need to receive, then be that. But do your part in that whole process. Verse 29 and 30 says that we're to encourage each other with our words. Though they say that is be kind with your words, with your encouragement. You know, it's interesting because he says in there to get rid of foul language. The word there literally is filthy language. It describes something that is rotten. He says none of it should come from your mouth. And when you look at the rest of Scripture, well, what is that? Well, it's obviously abusive language where you are trying to hurt someone. It's obviously slander or vicious talk where you are talking about someone's character. But it also throughout Scripture put right with malice and and that or speaking falsehood or just tweaking the truth a little bit to get your way or the one that is mentioned as much as any of those as part of filthy language is gossip. Speaking about someone without giving them an opportunity to defend themselves. With our words, we are to be encouraging, building up. That's what it means to walk worthy. And then the last thing is, in this little section, we forgive. What does it look to walk worthy of the calling of our lives? It means that we forgive others, people. And look what it says. Not forgive as much as you want to forgive, or forgive when you feel like it, or forgive if they ask for forgiveness. It doesn't say any of that. It says we are to forgive in the same measure and way that God also forgave you in Christ. Now, Remember, he spent three chapters telling us about that. He starts chapter 4 with, Therefore, don't forget what Christ has done for you. Live this way. And then he wraps up chapter 4 and says, And forgive one another, by the way, just like chapters 1 through 3 described. Completely forgive. This series has been about answering the big questions. How did we get here? The one and only God. What went wrong? Sin happened. Can we fix it? No, but Jesus did. And then the question that follows or should is, so what do we do now? And the answer is, we walk worthy of the calling. Based on how much we are thankful for what He's done. Just a moment, we're going to have a time of, of response and if you're here today and there's any reason you need to respond, maybe you need to come and pray. I'll be down here. Noah will be down here. If you want to come and have a conversation, we'd love to talk with you. If there's any reason you need to come, we're going to ask you to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we look at what you've done for us, 
Lord, I'm speechless. I, I can't explain it. I can't understand it. I mean, Joe from New York said it. He said, why me, God? Why me? And yet, Lord, I'm thankful that you did. And I'm grateful that I have been saved. Not by anything I did, but because of you and your grace. And Lord, I pray that in these days that I would live worthy of the calling that you've placed. I pray that as a church we would live worthy of the calling that you've placed on us. I pray that you will help to develop the character of Christ within us and the actions that follow from that. That you'll help us to speak truth and be kind and gentle and forgiving and angry about the right thing. And Lord, that in the midst of it all, it'll lead to a life and a church that glorifies your name above all others and that spreads your kingdom. I pray if there are those today that need to respond, that you'll make it clear to them how they need to do that. Maybe there's some here that, that accepted Christ on Wednesday night and they need to make that public and they need to talk through baptism. Maybe someone's here and, and based on the, the testimony even of last week with um, Amy being baptized as an adult, saying, I've never had that happen, Lord, that there's somebody here today who's an adult, who's, who's a believer, has been saved, but has not been baptized since then. Lord, today's the day they need to come. And tell us, let's get that set up. Lord, we just pray that whatever it is that you're calling us to do, that we'll do it right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.